Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com. Why are there residential child care facilities? What is congregate care? I think a lot of people sometimes shy away from these conversations, and obviously it needs to be done with some tact as to not make the boys feel a certain way. But I think it's very important that these kids that are stuck in the system are very educated on that system. And what does the term stuck in the system even mean? And so we talk about those numbers and those statistics and what it looks like for a 13-year-old to be in congregate care for over 300 days. You know, what does society say about what a kid that's been in congregate care for that long is supposed to turn out as or supposed to be. And I think what we found doing that for oh, about five years now is it, more times than not, those kids get motivated. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom. And today's episode is all about going against the grain. Something we're really passionate about at Just a Special is tackling systematic foster care issues with an innovative approach. Our guest today doesn't have a traditional child welfare background, and he really uses that to his advantage. Nick Thompson is a former pro basketball player turned what I would define as a child welfare revolutionary. Nick started out as a volunteer at a group home, and he then eventually went on to open up his own group home that has since become licensed as a residential care facility. Nick's story is especially relevant considering the family's first legislation, which is in the midst of a nationwide rollout, and mandates drastically reducing residential and institutional placements, and instead placing children with high acuity in more traditional family-like settings. As you can imagine, this is resulting in multi-layered and very complicated consequences for youth in the system with the highest needs. Kids Nick and his staff work with on a daily basis. Nick and I began talking about how his prior basketball career influences his current child welfare work. Basketball really is what kind of shaped me and some of the coaches that I played for. It was kind of a really unique route into childcare, but in hindsight, I, I played collegiately and I played professionally and I just had to push myself and meet a lot of different types of people and just kind of navigating the game and everything that came with it really gave me a unique perspective on life. And I was able to bring that into the childcare realm once I kind of educated myself on that stuff because I was pretty ignorant to what was going on in the foster care community um, up until I retired from the game of basketball. And can you walk us through why that switch? I mean, that's a huge switch going from basketball player to working with high needs youth, specifically boys age 10 to 15. What caused you to make that switch? Um, I was headed into my fourth professional season and I just, I really wasn't as motivated about it. And I really was starting to think differently um, about what I wanted to, you know, commit myself to up to that point. It was nothing but basketball for me. And I had really done the things that I wanted to do with basketball. And 
I was really feeling like I was looking for something more purposeful um, and something that I could really pour myself into. And so when I retired from basketball, I just started doing a lot of volunteer work in my community and working with different at-risk populations. Um, and I fell in love with group homes um, and the kids that lived in group homes and the stories um, and just kind of that chance to defy the odds. Um, and I met some kids that just were really special and I really, I really wanted to do more to help those kids that I had met. Um, I really kind of was critical of myself. I was like, oh man, well, you know, these kids are great. But at the end of the day, I was just playing basketball with them or working out with them. And I really started, you know, thinking about how can I make a bigger impact and how can I really affect these lives and, you know, give, give these kids some access to opportunity. So many people in your position, they have the desire to do it, but then they don't actually follow through. But you did follow through in a really huge way by starting your own group home called Brad's House. Can you tell us what Brad's House is and who it is named after? So Brad's House in 2017 was opened as a group home um, and named after Brad Barton. Brad was my person when I was a young man. My you know trials and tribulations were different. Every kid has their own story. I, I was in a pretty good spot and able to play basketball on a scholarship, but, but as a young man, I had a lot to figure out. And Brad was the first person that I met that really kind of helped me put those pieces together and really just kind of made me feel loved and safe enough to, you know, explore life and talk about stuff that wasn't surface level. And, you know, a lot of times as a young man, I hid behind basketball and kind of take that on as an identity. And Brad really kind of challenged me to be more and to be kind and to use the platform of basketball to affect other people and, and just really got me thinking about life differently. So for me, when I knew that I was on a mission to help young men, um, and Brad actually passed away when I was a junior in college. Um, so it just made a lot of sense for me to dedicate it to him and kind of put that on myself to, you know, remember why I'm doing this and, and what effect the adults at Brad's house can really have on young men's lives. And who was Brad to you? Was he like a coach or just a family friend? So in high school, Brad was like a, a skill development guy in my community. A lot of uh, kids that were going to go on to play college basketball would do a ton of workouts and stuff with Brad. Um, and then he ended up getting the assistant job at the first college that I played for. And so uh, my sophomore year is really uh, special for me because I got to spend that entire year with Brad. So he was there for some really pivotal moments of your professional and personal growth. So I know you've described boys 10 to 15 years old that are in the child welfare system as in limbo. Can you tell us why that is? Each individual has their own answer, but in, in short, we definitely see a pattern of kids that are living in trauma um, and each trauma is unique to its own. Um, but these boys from that trauma develop some behavioral issues. 10 to 15 is already a hard age um, and where you see some behaviors and you see some figuring it out type of stuff from young men. Um, but then when that's heightened by the trauma, what we see is foster parents being reluctant to care for those kiddos. And you'll see a population kind of forced into some living situations that aren't ideal, whether that be a more institutionalized living situation, or sometimes we'll see on the other end, maybe a group home that doesn't have a ton of structure and is maybe adding to that trauma. Family's First Act is kind of aiming to, to help out with that. Um, but that was really what I was seeing. I, I was seeing a collection of young men that were special and did have a lot to offer to the world. Um, and in my opinion, the living environments that they were in weren't going to give them access to the opportunities to to be able to figure things out. And so really when Brad's house started, we never had an idea of expansion. We were going to take nine beds at a time and make sure that those nine boys had a fighting chance and had access to those opportunities to be able to get some normalcy back and maintain a permanent living situation. Just, you know, the statistics for those carve outs, once you start getting denied foster homes, it really, really, it gets tough. You know, I think the most staggering one for me is you have the same chance of gaining full-time employment by the age of 21 as you do of ending up in jail. And so I really, 
I kind of just fell in love with that, you know, this, this, the story and being up against the odds and, and helping young men wrap their head around what society was saying was supposed to happen to them and, and using that to motivate them to go after some of their goals and to, to feel safe enough to, to try to chase a dream, which is something that a lot of kids don't, we don't think of that as a privilege, um, but it really is. A lot of these kids, when they're living through trauma, they don't have time to think about what their goals and their aspirations are. And so being able to give that back to them um, and allowing them to be a kid again is, is kind of where the idea sparked from. What you're saying about these youth really being in limbo and in situations that aren't ideal for themselves, I've seen firsthand as a foster parent to older youth. And like you're saying, the statistics really are stacked against them. Something that you do at Brad's house is you don't use any restraining or seclusion tactics, which are pretty common actually in the child welfare system and dealing with these higher needs and older youth. Um, can you tell us why that is and what alternatives you use? When I opened as a group home, before we transitioned to a facility, um, before we got different program attachments and trauma-informed care and all of these new certifications, it really came from a place of, I just never felt comfortable doing it. Uh, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm like 6'9", 240. Um, and I just, I felt that if I ever did that with my size and stature, that it would do something to the relationship that we would never be able to get back. Um, and so when I started, my only employees were myself and my little brother, who's also a pretty big guy. And we just didn't feel a need for it. Um, being bigger, we, we never felt, you know, even when my kids would get elevated, I never felt like my personal safety. And so it stems out of that. Um, but then as things grew and I started to learn more, we started thinking about what we were doing. People were kind of like, well, you know, you guys aren't using restraints at all. How are you doing that? And it's, it was kind of like, well, it's all I've ever known. That's all I've done. And so what we did at that point when we started getting bigger and having more employees, we have 22 um, employees that work at that location now. And we started really thinking about it. We were doing things that seemed simple, but they were actually these great things that were really catching on with kids. We were taking these kids that on paper were supposed to have these meltdowns or get physically aggressive. And not that they never did, but we were seeing significant drops in that type of behavior. And when they did get elevated, it was nowhere near what we'd seen in the past. And a big piece of that was just the like preventative, playful engagement, not black and white, my way or the highway, like classic adult kid thinking stuff, but playfully kind of poking around frustrations or, you know, giving those kids a, a voice. Um, it's things as easy as telling a kid, hey, what, what would you do in this situation? What do you think your consequence should be um, for X, Y, or Z? Um, and now as it's grown, um, we've really leaned into TBRI, which is the trust-based relational intervention. And again, it's not rocket science. It's not these, you know, crazy scientific techniques. It's literally remembering what you're bringing to a situation. When I catch a kid maybe breaking something or saying things he's not supposed to be, what, what's my first interaction with that kid like? Am I going to immediately come at him elevated myself or am I going to be able to remain calm? Um, I do a lot of sitting on the floor personally, um, being such a big guy and addressing things that way or things as simple as letting the kid decide when they're going to address it. I think a lot of times adults get so caught up in, I'm the adult, you're supposed to listen, you're the kid, and we'll, we'll tell kids, hey, there was a mistake made, um, let us know what you're needing. If you'd like some space outside, maybe you want to go for a walk or take a bike ride before we have to address this, let us know when you're going to be in a space where we can kind of go through this because we've got to talk about it if we're going to continue to share space. Um, and so the biggest thing we're doing is just giving those kids a voice and letting, letting them decide what care looks like for them. And obviously it has to be reasonable and it has to be done in a way that's allowed within the system. I mean, we're still very aware that we are an entity of the system um, and we can't go outside of certain parameters. But within reason, our, our boys tell us how to care for them and not the other way around. That's so interesting. And TBRI is something I use in my own home and my own foster parenting as well. And like you're saying, it's a totally different roadmap to interacting with these kids. And what I love about it that you've really touched on too, is it really gives these kids some control and some autonomy in their lives. 
in my own interactions with older youth in the foster care system, a lot of times they feel like that's really lost. And there can be even the sense of like, why should I even try? It's not going to matter. I don't actually have an impact on the outcome of my life, which makes sense when they've moved from home to home to home, or they've been in just really unideal situations where truly it didn't matter what they did or didn't do. So what are some of those other ways that you give these kids some control and autonomy in their lives and some hope that, yes, my actions actually can have positive outcomes? So one of the things, especially when working with young kids, is being able to give those little yeses and those little wins as much as possible. And so we have like a level system within our program that is directly attached to privileges that 10 to 15 year olds like a later bedtime, more video game time, unsupervised outside time, unsupervised walks within our community. Um, and, And so we have that, but we're very careful to remind the boys and talk often to the boys about how that is just a program while they're here to keep them motivated. But big picture is getting their life back and is gaining access to the opportunities that they're looking forward to. And so we really kind of try to keep them separate. I don't want a kid feeling like he can't get his life back because he's not able to earn his unsupervised time outside. It's completely different. And I think a lot of times programs will intertwine them. I have kids right now that are stuck on a level one or a 1.5 at the house, but they're doing wonderful and they're taking steps to gaining a permanent living situation. Um, And so that's kind of one of our biggest things is helping the staff there to remember that just because the kids are struggling day to day with like minute behaviors. I mean, sometimes we forget that that's just what it's like to be 13. It's hard to be 13. It's hard to listen all the time. It's hard to follow directions. It's very natural to want to rebel or push back against adults. And that's how you figure out, you know, where, where things are going to land for you in life. And so we really try to help our kids distinguish between the two. Um, and I think that's really important for them because oftentimes something like a level system within a residential program can have a kid feeling like he's not doing a good job when the reality is, I mean, staying safe, working on yourself, committing to being treatment, you know, allowing yourself to feel safe enough to think about learning new skills and new life skills. I mean, those are huge, giant wins, especially when we're talking about youth and congregate care. So we really, really celebrate all of those things and try to minimize the level system and not make that feel correlated to how well they're doing in life. That's such a good point you bring up that a lot of times we can overlook these huge wins. Kids being willing to go to therapy is a huge thing. Or even a kid admitting like, hey, maybe that wasn't the best reaction I had to that. There's so many adults that I know, right, in my own life that like, that's not going to happen no matter what. That's huge. Like you're saying to hold those wins for them and really celebrate them for that. And I love too how a lot of the work you're doing is helping kids build their self-confidence. What are some of the other ways that you help these boys build their self-confidence? I always find myself circling back to just that access to opportunity. A lot of these kids that we're talking about that are slipping through these cracks and have made their way to congregate care, the world to them is so small. So putting them in front of as many things as possible and allowing them space to create an identity. I mean, 13, 14, 15 year old kids in the system don't have identities. Your normal average American adolescent has probably tried four sports and done a bunch of different hobby things and has went camping and has, you know, done X, Y, and Z with family members or friends from school. And so one of the things that we do is we just provide space for our boys to figure out who they are. Um, if, if a boy mentions anything, we add it into their program. We don't have a program. We often talk about, I don't have something I could hand to you until I meet that kid. And he has a say in it. So if this kid is interested in outdoors and fishing and the other kid is interested in football and basketball, that's going to be directly written into their treatment plans. And those kids are going to have access to those opportunities. So we put kids in sports leagues all the time. Um, If our older kids have any like career goals or anything, we'll find them internships in the summer. So really 
I think the number one thing that we're doing over there is just providing that access to opportunity. Um, our boys actually, upon arriving, also get a membership to the Woodmore Country Club, and that's attached to the beds, and it's a deal that we've worked out with our community here, and it's it's something that's so cool to take some of these low-income kids or kids that have lived in bad situations. And, you know, a unique thing about our facility is we are located in an affluent community and the boys are members of a country club. And just going there and swimming and having a lunch and understanding that the world is full of opportunity and it's a lot bigger than, you know, the street that they were raised on or the apartment complex that they never left growing up. Um, I think is what we do most important because, you know, it's so funny that everyone's always asking, well, what are you guys doing for the boys that they're doing this? And it's the boys are doing it for themselves. We, we just put them in the spaces and then they figure out who they are. And that's when we see them start thriving. It feels good to be a part of things. It feels good to do things that you like to do. And so once they find what that is, um, oftentimes we'll see that run parallel with their treatment. Um, you know, starting to progress. And it's not because the therapist is so good or staff is so good or I'm so good. It's because that boy is feeling safe enough to, you know, accept love and give love and, you know, be open to new things. And he's figuring out who he is and that gives him a purpose and it gives him an identity. And that's when we see kids heal and take off. I think that connection to the local community is so important. These kids are oftentimes initially feeling very unsafe and there is this tendency to want to really turn inward or like just the people in the house or the people I'm going to be talking to. And so how I try to describe it is I'm like, you know, it's like a pond if you're not going out and connecting with other people. Because even with my partner and I am like, we we have blind spots. We can't be everything for you. There's things that we don't even know we're probably doing wrong or not doing in the best way. It's really important for you to make connections with other people as well. Um, Because like a pond, it'll just be really stagnant. You get all that like bad algae. But if you're more out in the community and building relationships with other people, then it's more like a river where you're getting these inputs. The water's, you know, much more clean and, and moving and it can have a lot more life in it. Yeah, I love that analogy. It's just so true. And we've been so lucky. Our community up here in Monument has really wrap their arms around the idea of Brad's house and, and enjoy getting to share the community with these boys. So it's been a really fun thing to do. Yeah. And I know a lot of your work, right, is focused on the future of these boys. Can you talk about how you help them develop life skills and even transition plans and life plans for their life after Brad's house? So when we started in 2017, one of the biggest, most immediate things that we saw was that it wasn't enough to get them healthy enough to return to a permanent placement. Um, you know, we had created such a connection and it could actually do, do more harm than good to send them away. And depending on how far away they were going to be, not have any more connection to us. And so we've really, over the last five years, dug into that aftercare piece. We've developed uh, a really fun life skills program um, that, when they are living within the program and they're on site and they, we do things like their chores in their room. Um, they get passes and fails for that. And that runs on a two week schedule, like a job. And then we have a pay period. Um, Cause a lot of our residents aren't old enough to actually gain employment. And we just start talking about work and talking about, you know, saving. Uh, we put kids on like saving plans where they can only spend 20% of the money coming in and 80% of it, goes to save towards a big goal, you know, and I mean, a big goal, right? For an 11 year old, a bike is a really big goal, um, but to teach them to put their money towards something and it feels good to buy something that you really want. Um, so little things like that on site, as well as uh, like laundry day and cook nights. So each boy has a day of the week where they're responsible for doing their laundry and they're responsible for doing their cook night. Um, and when we say responsible, uh, not in like an institutionalized way, we, we do it with them. We, we meet them where they're at. If I have a 12-year-old kid that's never done laundry, I'm doing laundry for the first five or six weeks. And I'm teaching them about doing it and why we do it and why we take pride in taking care of our, our clothes that we wear. Um, and then the cook night is the same thing. That night, they have to, with staff, be responsible for making our meal that we eat together as a house every night. We always do dinner as a house. Sometimes we'll split in groups if we're all the way full. 
Um, and you know, they don't always love coming in from outside or having to stop watching a TV show to do their cook night, but it is something we require. And it's a really cool thing. We have some of these kids that get older in our program and they get to the point where they're telling staff like, Hey, get out of here, man. Dinner will be ready at five 30. Go supervise the other kids. I've got dinner under control. Um, and so those are our really like main on-site life skill things. But then beyond that, um, I talked about some of the internship stuff that we've been able to do. We've had kids work with engineers. Um, we've had kids work with social workers, with teachers. We've had a kid express some interest in Brad's house one summer, and we gave him a deep dive on like how it actually works and how the funding works and how we're able to like do all of those things. And so we really try to just have a really clear transparency with our boys about the system. Part of the life skills program at Brad's house is educating them on the system that they're a part of. Why is Brad's house a thing? Why are there residential childcare facilities? What is congregate care? I think a lot of people sometimes shy away from these conversations and obviously it needs to be done with some tact as to not make the boys feel a certain way. But I think it's very important that these kids that are stuck in the system are very educated on that system. And what does the term stuck in the system even mean? And so we talk about those numbers and those statistics and what it looks like for a 13-year-old to be in congregate care for over 300 days. You know, what does society say about what a kid that's been in congregate care for that long is supposed to turn out as or supposed to be? And I think what we found doing that for oh, about five years now is it, more times than not, those kids get motivated. And when they have that better understanding and, you know, it's sometimes it's sad when I'm hearing such a young kid use all these professional terms and advocate for himself and his monthly staffings for his team to work hard for him for permanency and stuff like that. But I think it, it's really important. Again, it's it's their lives. This, this work is so unique in that we're dealing with lives and what these people are supposed to turn out as. And so it's, it's just really fun when these boys can kind of grasp the concept and really understand what they're supposed to be doing with their time at a treatment center and are able to, you know, take those life skills and really kind of take control of their own lives and, and, and get things back and see themselves into permanency. And then the aftercare piece, um, we follow our residents home when, when it's within a reasonable like length. We do a lot of work with Weld County um, and that one, we're trying to get an office open down there right now. We can't follow those clients home. So we identify somebody else, but then we do advocacy and family preservation where we go in with our parents and the kiddo and we make sure that that placement stays intact. And we make sure that mom and dad have what they need just as much as kiddo have what they need. And that's something that I've learned. I think anyone that does this kind of work is has to have some embarrassing moments early on when they weren't, you know, thinking right or being trauma informed. And I, I was quick to blame parents or I was quick to look at parents through a lens of they should be doing something different for this kid instead of understanding a lot of times these parents didn't get to heal through their trauma or aren't getting properly supportive in their lives. And this is just a byproduct of that. Not all of our parents need it, but when they do need it, we, we love to be available to help them and to kind of break down those barriers. Really, from my time in this industry, it's, it's really kind of parents versus the system as opposed to people working together. So we really try to bridge that gap and help the parents understand that we are there for them. And we do that by going into the homes, building the behavior plans, being available to mom and dad. We use that advocacy to get the kiddo out of the house for chunks of time to give the parents a break. Um, and just all of the realities that come with taking a kid who has been in congregate care back into your home. It's, it's not always going to be pretty. Every day is not going to be easy. And when those parents don't have a support system, that's when things can get toxic. And when we see kids come back for a second stay at Brad's house. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that surprised me as well is just the cyclicalness of the system and how parents sometimes really, it seems, aren't supported in doing what's best for their child. So I know that um, many of the boys staying at Brad's house are able to return home within six months to two years. How do you keep the family involved while they are at Brad's house? So when we have a family, you know, the reality is 
oftentimes we don't and we're, we're seeking that permanency. But when we do, um, from day one, we let those parents know that they have a say in treatment. They're a part of building those behavior plans. We use their input to do it. And then our flexibility with the visits and with the passes is a big part of that too. I know a lot of people that are doing this level of care and a lot of facilities don't have the flexibility of being in a residential neighborhood and you know all of the things that come with Brad's house, but we really kind of just work with our parents, whatever they're needing, whatever timeframes work for them, um, transportation. Um, but it's just really important to us that our parents are valued and that they understand that we're here to work with them and not only there to work with them, but we're there until they don't want us there. We're not a hospital. We're not a quick fix. We're not, once your kid gets discharged, you're not going to have access to us. Our parents know that there's ongoing things that they're going to be invited to. Uh, We do camping trips, Rockies games, um, barbecues that all of our former residents always get invited to, to come back. Um, But that's, I think the biggest piece is just meeting the parents where they are. A lot of this conversation these days is about meeting kids where they're at. Um, And I think the parents sometimes get left out of it because the reality is when you look at kids that are in congregate care, behind that are a lot of really hardworking parents that have not got their fair shake at life. And and no one ever interrupted that cycle and no one ever, you know, was there to help that. So we kind of take that on with the kid. When we get a kid and when we're doing an intake, we're working with whatever those supports look like. If it's an untraditional family, a traditional family, we really understand that we're working with a unit and not just a single child. So much of what you're saying and what you do really makes me think about how this is really holistic work. And so much of it too is just staring down at the challenges and difficulties that is inherent in this work. And instead of trying to downplay it or sugarcoat it, you're really taking it heads on and especially empowering the boys to know, you know, what is congregate care and how they can find a way through it and giving them the statistics that so many people shy away from, you know, what are some of those other ways that you're just staring down the difficulties inherent in this and the challenges and finding solutions? And so I, I guess the, the whole thing kind of resonates with that. When I got my start, I I had to take a $10 an hour job at another group home because I don't have an educational background in childcare and I didn't have any experience. And even after getting a couple years under my belt and opening Brad's house, I still was getting a ton of pushback. You know, I don't have any formal education in childcare. I don't have a degree in childcare. In 2019, when we made the switch from a group home to a residential child care facility, we were supposed to go hands-on. And I, I really was avoiding that and still am kind of avoiding that. And by hands-on, you mean like restraining, right? Yep. Having to restrain residents and, it, you know, to keep them safe. But we've just really kind of stuck our flag in the ground on we're a community-based program. We're in a normal neighborhood. The boys are housed in a normal house. Um, and we're, we're just going to do things a little bit different. We shy away from a lot of like medication. I know a lot of residential facilities have a strict medication like regimen, and you'll see a lot of their residents getting heavily medicated, whereas we're much more likely to work two hours of outside play into a kid's treatment plan before we put them on an antidepressant. And not to say there's not a need for meds and meds aren't helping kids, but I think my non-traditional background has has started things with a really unique lens. And we've just carefully hired people that kind of enjoy thinking outside the box about childcare. And we're a group of people that do want to challenge the system. And we do want to call things out when we don't feel like it's right. And we do want to, you know, give those boys a voice in their care. And so I think the whole idea of Brad's house is based in that idea. We, we do want things to be different. I, I don't think it's working. When we talk about congregate levels of care, I, I don't think it's being done correctly in our nation. And I'm not, you know, are there one-off programs where things are going really good? And are there people in our country that are passionate? I, I do believe so, but I think we can do a better job of putting those bylaws and passing some things for this particular demographic. I I do think kids that 
aren't being accepted into permanent living situations were left out of the Family First Act. And that's kind of the heart and soul of Brad's house is, is making sure those kids aren't forgotten and making sure those kids do have access to the opportunities that they need to become successful. Right. And so much of what you're doing, too, that's so revolutionary is having a facility be a home environment. Like you've mentioned, Brad's house is an actual house in an actual neighborhood. Um, what are some of those other ways that you maintain a home environment, even though it's a nine bed placement facility? When the boys allow us, we try to share like meals and activities. Sometimes they had enough of each other and we can't. But like uh, this Sunday, we're all going up on a camping trip. Two weekends ago, we all went up in the mountains, me and staff and the boys. I think we're 17 of us in a tree grove and we all did a big camping trip in uh, hammocks and camped out under the stars. So just that kind of shared experience piece. And then another really cool thing that actually one of my interns helped me add this year is what we call our connection groups. Um, and that's just on Saturday mornings. We've created a space. We started by not really addressing anything and just <laughs> really bribing the boys with good food and drinks to be very kind to each other. And we uh, just established some ground rules. Um, as you can imagine, day-to-day -day life at Brad's house, there's a lot of uh, right, kids are getting called stupid. There's cuss words. Um, there's some unfriendly interactions. That's always going to happen with that many young men under one roof. But for one hour a week on Saturday mornings, we enter a room and nobody even playfully calls each other dummy or stupid. We are extremely respectful. We usually have a talking stick and those boys do a wonderful job of like validating each other's frustrations. We'll see kids in that setting say, hey man, you know, you've really been giving me a hard time about, you know, I cry whenever I get in trouble and that actually really hurts my feelings. And we'll see the other kids say, hey, sorry about that, man. I think it was, it's funny, but I haven't realized it's been hurting you. And so those have really been a fun thing and our boys have really done a good job of helping us start that. And it's kind of turned into a thing again the snacks and the drinks are always top notch. And I think that's probably one of the biggest parts of us getting that participation. But for one hour a week, our boys are very respectful and understanding of what it means to share space and what it means to give each other the space to heal. And we kind of just talk about like why we're really here because we do a lot of avoiding that. They do enough in therapeutic settings. Really, we're just playing and engaging and, and sharing life with our residents. But for one hour a week, we get kind of serious and talk about, hey, everyone's on a journey. And right now they need to be safe at home and they need to feel like home is a place where they're not going to be abused or they're not going to be made fun of. And it, it's really going to help them, you know, get to the next step of their life. And the, those boys hear each other for about an hour. After an hour, they're, they're definitely done. <laughs> they don't want to be a part of it anymore. Um, but that's been a really cool thing that we've developed this year. What I love about that too, is it's so realistic because someone might starting out in this work, you know, we're all idealists, right? Otherwise there's no way we would show up for this, but yeah, like some, someone on the outside might be like, Oh, why can't they be respectful at all times? <laughs> I love how realistic that is. And you're letting them develop almost these like new muscles, right? Of, okay, I know I can be respectful. You know, I, I could do it an hour every week. So, you know, Brad's house named after, you know, Brad, your mentor, one of the things that he really gave you was an optimism and love for life. Um, and that's something you really try to pass on to these boys. Um, how have you seen that achieved most effectively? I think just through the relationship piece and the appreciation, we do a lot of talking surrounding like, hey, things aren't great, right? Things aren't perfect. Obviously, you've made your way to a residential child care facility, but boy, what a wonderful opportunity you all still have and trying to help a young man understand the big picture. Well, I personally, as a kid, had a hard time seeing the big picture, and I know most kids do, but helping a 13-year-old that comes from trauma, that comes from abuse, that ha has never had anyone to look up to and, and helping them to understand, like, hey, dude, you're, you're only 13 years into this thing. But life is very, very plentiful. There's still so much to be gained a lot of our boys are stuck in a generational cycle and giving them that opportunity and helping them wrap their head around, hey, I, I can be the one that breaks this. I can be the one that is a good dad when I grow up or I 
can go live in New York City and chase my dream of being a singer, or I can move to California when I turn 18. And a lot of our boys have, have forgot how much is in front of them because what's behind them is just so heavy. And so we oftentimes are, are really trying to drive home the point of like, hey, it, it's dark right now and there's a lot of work to be done, but this, this can get to a point where it's all in your rear view. And that's a really empowering thing to give to a kid that's given up. Um, and it's really sad to think of 10, 11, 12 year olds that have given up, but they're out there, they're in everyone's community. I, I'm meeting them all the time. And when they get that light back and when they're able to understand that this is just a time in their life and it's not what their life is, is just a really powerful thing. One of the most intimidating parts of foster parenting for me was when my home was investigated for child abuse by the Department of Human Services. When I was in foster parent training, they told us that if you foster long enough, it's not a matter of if you will be investigated, it's a matter of when. So how did my partner and I get through it? Honestly, it was a huge relief to have our agency support during that time. Kids Crossing is a private foster care agency in Colorado, and they had our home coordinator explain the process to us, and she was available to be present during our interviews. Kids Crossing even followed up on our case with child welfare so they could keep us updated. It was a huge relief to feel like we weren't going through the process alone. But to be completely honest, it can feel pretty discouraging to be investigated for false allegations after all the support you've provided as a foster parent. So it was also really encouraging to have our home coordinator repeatedly check in with us and normalize the experience for us. And knowing our agency could help us legally if needed was a huge stress reliever. Kids Crossing even sent us a thank you card to help us celebrate our home being opened up again. Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more about how you can become a foster parent at kidscrossing.com. So you adopted one of your first residents. Can you walk us through that journey? Yes. My son, Ian, he'll actually be 16 next month, but more or less, I lived in Brad's house to open it and we did six beds um, while my wife and I lived there and kind of along with my first six kids, figuring out their permanency and getting them their transition situation set up. I started, you know, leaning into my transition plan, which was just to move down the street. We're still 15 minutes down the road. But as I did that, we, we had one kid and not that he didn't have a permanency plan. Um, I wasn't a fan of it. I didn't know how successful it was going to be. My son's had a very, very unique journey in the system. He's been a part of the system since he was six years old up until um, we adopted him. And he, <laughs> trying to think of a nice way to say it so my son doesn't get bothered by me. Um, he, he pushes back big time um, and he's very critical of who he allows to care for him. And I just wanted to make sure that no one was going to give up on him again. Um, he had been given up on a lot in his life. By no means was I like, oh, we're going to be the perfect parents. It was more of a, I, I wasn't going to allow anyone to give up on Ian again. And the best way to do that was to make sure that the adults that were caring for him were my wife and I. Wow. And then how has that been? So it's been like almost four years now, right? That he's been living with you. Yep. Four years. And we have two bio children now. I don't, I don't want to like sugarcoat things. It's not a Disney movie. And my son's trauma is, is very real. And the stuff that he had had to live through make it difficult sometimes for him to navigate what people would think of normal, like teenage parent and child expectations. And so it, it's, it's a developing thing. He, he's doing a great job. He's a wonderful big brother. He plays football and baseball for his high school. And he actually had has a job now. He teaches jujitsu um, to kids at our local jujitsu gym. So he, he really is developing into this, this wonderful young man, but adopting teenagers that have had traumatic journeys through the system. It, it's not always pretty and things aren't always perfect. Um, but we all remind ourselves like, 
that's that's fine. It's not perfect for anyone. And most quote unquote normal families aren't perfect either. They're just not sharing that and, and talking about it. And so I think sometimes the most empowering thing for my son is to be able to tell him like, hey, man, that's just normal. Every time he has a bad day or he has a behavior, he we're so quick or, you know, even sometimes we're so quick to, to lean into, well, why this? And maybe it's because of this. And well, maybe it's just because he's 15 and high school in America is hard. And that's such a great perspective. And like you're saying too, I don't know any parent of any teenager that's like, this is the best time of my parenting journey. Like bio, adopted, foster, it doesn't matter. There's just some challenges there inherent because these kids are going through different psychological changes. So how do you balance your passion and work with Brad's house with your own family life, being the father of three kids? And then also like, how do you not get burned out uh, working in a place where you can see a lot of success, but you're also seeing, you know, a lot of heartache and frustration. So on the first part, I, I don't know that I do balance it uh, more. So we, we merge it. The residents of Brad's house know my kids, my baby's only 10 months. So not her as much, but my three-year-old and Ian, I mean, we go over there, we go bike riding with the kids. We play basketball with the kids. We go camping with the kids. Um, and I'm very transparent with my boys, um, not only like about my family members, my wife works for the company. We have talks about, hey, I'm financially stable and raise three kids and take care of a family. And I'm able to do all of that due to my hard work here. We talk about everything that comes with being a dad or if I'm going to miss something at Brad's house, I go over there and tell the kids, hey, I'm really sorry. I know that we have our barbecue on Friday, but... Ian has baseball games, so me and Ian are going to be late. I think living in front of our residents and modeling is, you know, really the most important work we do, and we're just doing it. It's not something that we're thinking of often, but that transparency piece and sharing who I am and, you know, within reason, obviously, we're not sharing every little detail, but we, I don't really have a firm line between work and home, Um, and again, not unreasonable. I don't have inappropriate boundaries or anything like that, but I, we live as one with our residents. So they, they know that I live in town. They know who my kids are. Um, they know about my family schedule. If I'm going out of town to do stuff, they know where I'm at and what I'm doing. Um, oftentimes when my family's in town, my parents will go over and meet the kids. And on the balance piece, I don't know if it's balance as much as we've kind of decided that this is more of a lifestyle and we're going to share who we are and what we have with all the kids that come through those doors. Um, And then on the second piece, the burnout piece, that one, we're trying to learn more about that. And especially for my employees, because you're you're so right. It's not always the easiest. You you are going to have kids cuss at you. You are going to see property damage. You are going to just have some days at work that can produce some secondary trauma. Um, And so I think one of the coolest things for me is I do it with my wife and my little brother. And and so we're able to have those conversations. I think anyone that's in this industry has kind of developed some coping mechanisms of some, some odd sense of humors. I'll have a laugh about a kid, you know, cussing me out and breaking the window. Um, So that piece is, is big for me. And then really just family stuff. Um, it's really fun to get to be a dad. My youngest son played soccer this year, and my older son has football and baseball games and stuff. So definitely big time with self-care and stuff. Um, but it's funny because a lot of my self-care is with Brad's house, the camping trips, the bike rides, um, maintaining that activity and stuff like that. I don't think you can prevent the burnout. I think, you know, like you said, there's tons of success stories, but there's also really bad days. And there's times that we're not successful with the kid and those are going to stick with you and you're going to remember those kids too. And so I think more than anything, being able to like have a perspective that, Hey, we're working as hard as we can and we're doing the best that we can and we're helping as much as we can. And some days that's just where we're at. We tried as hard as we could and we weren't able to help. Um, And so I've been able to develop that, you know, through the years early on, it was a lot, a lot harder for me, but we're really as a company 
starting to understand how we can support that staff. Um, all of our staff have therapy built into their benefit packages, and we use therapeutic providers that know what it's like to work with at-risk youth. Um, and so we encourage all of our employees to use those options, as well as um, just like company get-togethers. We do a lot of going to a bowling alley or coming over to my house to have a barbecue and just really, you know, connecting as adults the same way that we try to connect with those kids and understand how cool it is to be a part of a community. Um, especially for me, I've got to watch it grow from me, my wife and my brother to now 22 employees. And it's so awesome to share space with other people that are just trying to help and are just trying to be there as much as they can. And so we really lean on each other. And I think it's just nice. You know, a lot of foster parents aren't afforded that community and they can oftentimes feel alone or they don't have that support. And we don't feel like that at Brad's house because we have such a big team and all of us are so passionate and we share all that space together. Um, and so we really kind of lean into each other to prevent that burnout. But I just couldn't be more pleased to get to do, you know, the hard things that we're doing and do it with my little brother has been so fun. And I, I learned so much from him as much as we're alike. We're, we're also very, very different. I know how unique it is to be able to do that, especially in this industry and the type of work we're doing. So I'm just really, really lucky to have that. I, I really think that's a big proponent in why I'm able to avoid that burnout and why I'm able to really kind of give as much as I do give to Brad's house is because I get to do it with family. That community piece for sure. I feel like it's a life raft that in the sense of humor, like you were talking about, like mm -hmm. if you don't have those, it's just a matter of time before you're going to sink, right? You got to be able to <laughs> yeah. laugh at the end of the day at yourself and, you know, situations as well. Yeah. Yeah. What's something that's most surprised you along this journey? I guess the most surprising is just how many people are willing to help. There's a, there's a lack of education. There's a lack of understanding. There's not a lack of people that want to help kids in their community. And I can only speak for my community, but I imagine other people would have the same results. When I started, I, I was ignorant and I didn't know what was going on. And when I figured it out, I wanted to help. And since the day I started figuring it out and wanting to help, it's just been amazing the amount of people I've ran into that also want to help. And, you know, wanting to help isn't always sacrificing your life and your belongings and moving them into a house and starting a group home. Sometimes it's offering one hour of free tennis lessons. Sometimes it's extending my membership at a country club to the nine beds at Brad's house. We have a neighbor that does a book club every summer, but almost everyone I meet wants to help. And we have a paint crew over there right now that's redoing all the paint on the inside of Brad's house for free. I, I oftentimes thought, oh man, no one's going to do this. I've got to do it. And the more I do it, the more I understand. No, I, I'm just doing my part. But everyone else wants to do their part. Nobody hears about these kids and hears these stories and says they don't want to help. Help just looks different for everyone. But that's been really surprising for me. For the first two or three years, we were just working so hard to, to get it open and get it going and create a reputation where counties would trust us enough to, to place their kids with us. Um, and so we weren't doing much talking and we weren't telling everyone when we got our nonprofit status and we started having more events and presenting more often. Um, it's just been really, really cool to see all the different community members and the different ways that they're able to help. Um, and it really is a group effort. We often talk about how proud we are to get to champion that effort. And that's very fun for us. And I think sometimes it's uh, like a self-fulfilling thing, right? It's, it's nice to feel good. It's nice to do, to do good work. But the, the truth is the entire community is helping us with Brad's house. Everyone that we've met in their own ways. I mean, we've got boys that do free swim lessons with people, the free tennis lessons with people. We've had people come over to the house and donate their time. And I can't even name all of the events around here that we've been able to take the boys to. But that for me has been surprising is if people hear about it and if people learn about what's going on, they, they will help. 
Yeah, no, that's so huge. And I think that also goes back to that balance piece. And even just having one placement at my house, I've noticed that too, is like, I can't do it all on my own. And it's so much better for the kid and everyone when you have multiple people surrounding and supporting these kids. And it just sets them up to know that like, hey, a lot of people care about me. It's not just like one or two people, like a whole community of people care about me. So Uh, What do you have to say to someone who's intimidated about working with teenage boys? I'd really encourage people to do it. I know it's not the most fun age group always for a lot of people, especially when I think people get scared when you put the the behavioral in front of the teenage boys, right? Teenage boys is scary enough. And then you say that piece of it. But boy, I, I would really encourage people to take a look in their community about working with at risk youth. It's not what you think it is. I've been doing this for seven years now. I've yet to meet a kid who is just a nasty person. It's connected to trauma and it, it really, really is a lot deeper than what it seems like on the surface. I tell people all the time, it's not just what I'm giving to the boys. The boys are giving back. The boys are keeping our cups full and and it's a really special thing when you get to be the person that helps somebody. We, we talk a lot, especially with the people that work at Brad's house. No one's getting rich doing at-risk childcare, but boy, our, our cups are full over there and those boys give us just as much as we're giving them. So I would really encourage people to kind of get outside of their comfort zone and, and do some work with some at-risk teenagers because one, They need it. And I don't care where you're living right now. I promise you there are at-risk teenagers that need your help, but you would be so surprised at how much they'll help you. Right. And then I'm wondering too, like, you know, you're 6'9", a former basketball player. Like I'm assuming that gives you some sort of credibility with these boys. How have you seen like some of your other staff develop personal relationships? And even for you, what has been kind of some of those first steps to developing relationships with these boys who rightly so probably have a lot of skepticism when an adult wants to connect with them. It's been really cool to watch all the different personalities kind of carve out their own lane of what relationships are going to look like with our boys, but it's definitely holds true. Being yourself is cool. You know, I think a lot of people, oh, well, yeah, you know, he that guy used to play basketball and I bet the kids think he's cool. Or I I got staff that have never played basketball and are awesome at guitar. And I've got staff that are in their forties and don't have any children and, you know, not any real formal work like this. And they're great at crafts and the kids think that's cool. Those kids understanding being yourself is what it is. It's not what you're trying to be. I, I did play basketball and I, that's who I am. And so I think that's been the coolest thing as we've grown is we're such a diverse group of people that work at Brad's house. And it's kind of also, like you said before, with the pond and the river piece is every kid doesn't think a former basketball player is awesome. Every kid doesn't think some guy that plays guitar is awesome. You're going to be somebody's type of person. One of the kids is going to need who you are. And so we always are reminding staff, it's really important to bring yourself to work. And when we interview people, that's one of the first things we're asking is, hey, what what are you excited to share with, with our boys? What comes with you? Who are you? What type of things do you like to do? And we allow our employees to really bring all of that to work. If there's not something there to do it, then we'll make it. We have two guys now who are in bands and are super musically inclined and we're starting a music program for them. Um, and I have some ex-vets that are really outdoorsy and we started an outdoors and camping program for them. So we, we really, really try to let our employees' personalities shine through. Um, Cause again, it's just that access to opportunities. Our, our boys never knew that they could be in a band until one of our staff members was in a band. Now it's real for them. They can see that they oh Jacob, doesn't work on Saturday because he's playing in a show downtown Colorado Springs. So allowing the boys to like understand that and feel that and see it um, is just really cool. So yeah, I'd say just being yourself um, and then allowing people to be themselves at work. I think sometimes when you get up to our levels of care and things can feel more institutionalized. I, I, I remember personally when I was volunteering, they would tell me not 
to share certain things with the boys. Again, obviously there has to be some some boundaries, but we want to talk about our personal lives to our boys. I want our boys to understand that we're people living lives that have hobbies and are, are doing things that we like to do outside of work. So we just really kind of put an emphasis on letting their personality shine through and letting our employees bring who they are to work. Yeah. I mean, to do this work effectively in any sense of the word, you really do have to bring your full self. I think how has Brad's house changed you? Oh boy. It's taught me so much about patience. I was not a very patient person throughout my life. And I also was a bit aggressive. Um, I think to make it to where I made it in basketball, it kind of just comes with the territory. And also I was, uh, some of my best mentors, you know, Brad included, um, sometimes the way that they would motivate me with a style of care that I was used to was just a really aggressive. I think anyone that's been a former athlete could probably understand what I'm meaning when I say that. My coaches would have my best interest in mind, but they they weren't always the nicest to me. Um, definitely have memories of being called every name under the sun. And in hindsight, as I moved through playing collegiately to professionally, I understood it was to like motivate me and push me. Um, and so Brad's house has been fun because I've kind of taken that idea of pushing people and helping young people get the most out of themselves and helping them do hard things. Um, but then when you're dealing with kids that come from trauma, you can't do it in the way that it would be done on a basketball court. And so that kind of made me get really creative. And so I, I'm really pleased that we're doing that, but in a trauma informed way. I mean, the expectations are high on our boys and we are trying to get everything out of them that they have or that they didn't even know that they have, but doing that in a way that's very loving and very caring and very patient. Um, so that's been cool. It's kind of just taught me a little bit more about myself and helped me understand what some of my mentors were, were trying to help me with. But then it's really kind of forced me to, to be creative and come up with a new way to, to push these young people without adding to their trauma. I'm so grateful to Nick for sharing his story with us, but most importantly, for creating a safe and innovative place where older boys who are so often neglected and mistreated by the foster care system can truly thrive on their own terms. If you want to support Brad's house, you can learn more on our website at justaspecial.com, where we've included several direct links, or you can go to bradshouse.net where you can easily make a donation to support their work. If you live in Colorado, Brad's house is located in Monument with a second location to open fall of 2022 in Pueblo. And they are always accepting donations of usable goods as well as welcoming new volunteers. Learn more about accepted items and volunteering opportunities at bradshouse.net slash donate. Here's what Nick has to say about their volunteering options. I love having people come visit Brad's house and meet the boys and just getting to share people with the boys. So I would say, number one, you, people should come and visit. If you're in Colorado and you're able to schedule and come out, and I guarantee if you come walk through that place and talk with me for a little bit, that you'll find what your way of helping is, or at least starting to find that. So that's our favorite is people volunteering their time and coming and sharing that space with us. That's a wrap. Thanks again to our special guest, Nick Thompson. This episode pairs nicely with our episode number 18, titled Fostering Creatively, a 100-pound bike ride and YouTube star. As always, we love hearing from you. Give Just As Special a follow and review on Apple Podcasts. Those 30 seconds will actually make a massive difference in spreading foster care awareness. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at Just As Special. And be sure to visit our website, justaspecial.com, for more foster care resources. This podcast is produced by Kelton Reed and New Media Dojo. Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. 
I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com.